The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So in the Dhammapada, uh, I'll read you a verse from that. Uh, the Buddha describes contentment as the foremost wealth. He says, Health is the foremost possession, contentment the foremost wealth, trust the foremost kinship, and nirvana the foremost happiness. So, not only does he describe contentment as the foremost wealth, but also he describes complete awakening, nirvana, as the foremost happiness. So today I'd like to, um, first of all, talk about the context um, in which I want to present this subject, which is uh, the Buddha's teachings on liberative dependent arising. And then I'll focus on the role of contentment uh, in the Buddhist path and in the process of liberation. And then I'll finish by reading you uh, some poems from the Terigata in which some of the Buddha's uh, women disciples speak about their awakening, uh, specifically in terms of contentment and happiness. So, um, <clears throat> liberative dependent origination is similar to the teaching that you may be familiar with already of dependent origination. Uh, dependent is origination is the uh, chain of conditions that keeps us tied to the wheel of samsara, to the wheel of suffering. Um, and it begins with in- ignorance, which leads to craving. And then what is referred to in the ancient texts as this whole mass of suffering. So the teachings on liberative dependent arising uh, take off from suffering and lead all the way to awakening and the knowledge of awakening. So this is a very different set of conditions. It's, this, it's the conditions that take the practitioner from suffering to complete freedom. Um, there are lots of references in the Pali Canon to uh, dependent origination, many, many, many. But there's only one sutta in which uh, the Buddha talks about this liberative dependent arising, and that's the Upanisa Sutta, which is in the Samyutta Nikaya. So in Pali, Upanisa means condition or support. So this sutta is the sutta on supporting conditions. And it's useful to think of these conditions as conditions rather than as direct causes. They don't directly make something happen, but they put in place the conditions that allow things to arise. So um, this, I'll I'll just briefly go through uh, these 12 conditions of liberative dependent arising. It begins with suffering, interestingly enough. And what makes this suffering different is that, you know, whenever we're confronted with, with suffering, 
we're kind of at a fork in the road. And we can go down that path of reactivity, which just perpetuates the suffering. You know, we react and then, you know, it just, it just goes on. But there's another path, which is the path of wisdom. And that's when we bring some modicum of um, mindfulness or wisdom to our suffering. And we think, okay, what can I do here that's not going to be my habitual reactivity, but is actually going to take me in the direction of freedom from suffering? So this is a this is a fork in the road that we come to, you know, daily or even, you know, more than once a day. Um, but anyway, I think it's very interesting that this path towards freedom that the Buddha is talking about begins with how we respond to our dukkha, to our our suffering, and then when we start to uh, deal with something in a wise way. For example, um, somebody says something um, unkind to us and the first impulse is to be angry and to say something nasty back. But we catch ourselves and instead, you know, we maybe can arouse some sort of compassion for this person. You know, like, oh, what's going on with you? You know? And so we we transform this situation from one, instead of being one that perpetuates the suffering or aggravates the suffering into something that opens up into another realm of possibilities. And when we do that, um, what's born, uh, the condition that that this gives rise to, is confidence, uh, sometimes called faith. So as we do this, and this is based on our, our lived experience, it's not some dogma that we have to believe, um, we start responding to our suffering with wisdom uh, or kindness, and little by little we get more and more confidence that yeah, yeah this is this is a good way to go this this path is this path is a path that i'm i I can get into you know giving up greed, hate, and delusion not not such a bad idea so that's the second step is confidence the confidence that arises from our own lived experience of starting to deal with our suffering widely wisely confidence in terms in turn gives rise to gladness so gladness is kind of a a warming of the heart um, we're glad that we're on this path you know wow and maybe even grateful um you know, some of us who've been practicing for some time, if you look back five years ago, you'll probably see that you're in a very different place today than, than you were back then. That, that the path has actually had positive consequences in your life. And, and so you're naturally glad. And then this gladness uh, gives rise to the condition of joy. So joy can be quiet joy or subtle joy, but it can also be very... Uh, intense, uh, as it is in deep states of concentration. But joy can arise just with mindfulness. You know, joy can, you know, like last night seeing the full moon, or you're walking along and there's this gossamer thread just scintillating in the sunshine. And, And because you're present with it, you're joyful. You know, it's like, ah, wow, look at that. 
So um, joy can arise naturally um, from gladness, but also from, from being really mindful. And then joy, in turn, gives rise to tranquility. So tranquility for many of us is, uh, is kind of challenging because of our fast-paced life. But being able to calm down and slow down and, you know, let things quiet down a little bit um, is, is really essential ingredient in, in all these conditions. In some ways you can think of uh, tranquility as balancing joy. Joy is kind of uplifting and tranquility is settling, settling back down. So tranquility is the one that gives rise to happiness or contentment. So we've already had gladness and joy and so those are transformed by tranquility into something that's quieter than joy. It's, um, it's called sukha in Pali and it's a kind of sweet happiness that is suffused through the body and mind in a very gentle way um, and it just kind of spreading outward and it, and it has this quality uh, of tranquility in it. And then comes a really pivotal uh, point in this sequence which is it's that happiness or contentment that gives rise to samadhi So samadhi, as many of you know, uh, is the the deep states of meditation. It's often translated into English as uh, concentration, but in some ways that's a bit narrow because it's not, samadhi is not um, a kind of one-pointed concentration uh, that you get to with a lot of efforting. You know, I'm really going to get concentrated on this. That's not how it happens. (laughs) Uh, it's more like a unification of mind where we're not separate from who we are, we're not separate from our experience and with the, uh, the happiness and the, the contentment of just being glad to you know, be here where we are, not striving for anything in particular, samadhi arises. And while these other um, factors that I've talked about so far, we can do things to, to cultivate them, samadhi, well, samadhi can be cultivated in some ways where we, if we take, for example, uh, we make the decision that we're going to be more interested in uh, our experience in the present moment than we are in jumping on thought trains and going off into fantasies. So that helps us to get settled and to get concentrated. But in many ways, um, it's not something that we can make happen. So this, this shows you the importance of putting in place these conditions that let these uh, really wholesome states of mind arise. Um, and samadhi is... The, the really pivotal uh, one of these conditions because that's what allows us to see clearly. It allows us to have the insight into how things really are. 
And it, it does so because the mind is not junked up with all of our thoughts and our ego and, you know, everything else. We're, it's clear, you know. Um, and once we have the condition of really seeing things the way they are, um, then there's no personal agency involved at all anymore. It all is like being at the top of a mountain and from that point it's all downhill. It's just like water flowing downhill. Uh, seeing uh, the impermanence of all things really deeply uh, and seeing the not-self and you know, understanding uh, the suffering of clinging um, leads naturally to uh, the state of disenchantment. So disenchantment is where we sort of fall out of love with the the magic shows that we've been buying into for so long. And then disenchantment uh, leads naturally to dispassion. And in the Pali, the word means literally um, that the dye is fading. So all this color that, you know, we've thrown into things to make it more seductive is just starting to fade away. And as the dispassion um, grows, then nirvana, complete freedom, arises. And the last step in this, you'd think it might be freedom, but it's the knowledge of this freedom. So not only are we liberated, but we know. We really know it. And you'll see in some of the poems that I'll read to you later uh, that there are expressions of these women actually knowing that they've been liberated. Um, so it, an interesting thing is that, that um, samadhi, the vastness of samadhi where the mind is really still and really open, it's kind of always in there. You know, it stays with us. But it's very difficult to access when, when we're so busy with the rest of our lives and, and trying to be somebody. And, um, but it's, a, it's, it's an inner state that is actually always available to us if we can only let go enough uh, to sink into it. Um... In some ways, I, I think of uh, samadhi as a gift. Since we ourselves can't make it happen, it's, it's, it comes to us. Uh, and it's interesting that the, the Buddhist teachings on the conditions that lead to liberation, it's happiness or contentment that allows samadhi to arise. So that alone makes it very worthwhile cultivating. So uh, the Pali word for contentment is sukha, and it's the opposite of dukkha. Um, And as we've seen, uh, it's born of tranquility or calm. So tranquility is the seed for the flower of contentment to blossom. So now I'd like to talk about some ways in which we might cultivate contentment. And I'll give you a handout at the end of the day 
on these. Um, so the first ones, since in this uh, this scheme of liberative dependent arising tranquility is the uh, the proximate condition, um, that's uh, one of the first ways we can uh, cultivate contentment is by cultivating tranquility. A second way is by uh, living ethically. So the the Buddha calls this the the bliss of blamelessness. But when we commit to a life of non-harming, it makes us happy. You know, just think of the time that you've carefully caught a little spider and taken it outside and gently released it. You know, afterwards, you you feel happy. You know, it's... Can't help yourself, you know. So, so this this ethical behavior, you know, to to really um, being committed to doing no harm, whether in, in our, our actions or our speech or even our thoughts. That's that's uh, it, it's a fundamental way of creating happiness and contentment. In many ways, it's it's the bedrock of Buddhist practice. And then um, a third way is practicing generosity. And generosity um, is transformational because um, when we're really generous, it undercuts the tendency to be uh, selfish. And it helps us loosen our obsession with me, myself, and mine. And of course... um, Generosity obviously benefits the receiver, but uh, true generosity really benefits the giver as well. And I'm sure you've all experienced this uh, as well. You know, you you give something and then and you feel happy afterwards when when you've been really generous. Another way to cultivate contentment is through simplicity. And I always like to to think of um, the monastics that I know. When you see how utterly simply they live with nothing but a robe, a bowl, uh, and, and and they're so happy. You know, they're just kind of often just emanating happiness all around them with next to nothing in terms of possessions. And, you know, you may know that there's, a, uh, there's an institute in Berkeley where there are scientists who've been studying happiness. And one of the things they find is that um, people who have less tend to be happier than people who have more. You know, all this stuff that we have you know, we have to manage it, we have to maintain it, we have to worry about it getting stolen and protect it. Um, and it, when, if we can simplify our lives and get rid of some of that stuff, you know, live a bit simpler life, there tends to be more ease. There's certainly less to worry about. And so um, living simply is, is another way that we can cultivate contentment. And then very related to that one 
uh, is practicing gratitude. So, you know, I think if you um, were to go to a happiness guru, the first thing they would tell you would be uh, to practice gratitude. Make a gratitude list and, you know, write down every morning when you wake up or every night before you go to bed what you're grateful for that day. Um, And it it, it really does work. Um, It's it's quite healing, gratitude. It kind of um, unlocks uh, the gift of our life. And it makes what we have, enough. So, um, I think with gratitude, contentment um, tends to arise inevitably. And then the next uh, is practicing empathy, uh, kindness, compassion. And these uh, happiness scientists have also um, found that we seem to have a biological imperative for empathy. That, you know, a long time ago, our ancestors, those who took care of each other are the ones who have survived today. And those who uh, were more individualistic uh, tended not to survive as well. So these... uh, Scientists actually say that the best predictor for happiness is the degree to which we practice kindness and compassion and love. Uh, And this is also something that we can cultivate and and we'll do some of this together today. And then finally uh, is something called taking in the good. Um, Rick Hansen wrote a book uh, in which he featured this called Buddha's Brain um, some time ago. And according to Rick, we can actually rewire the neural transmitters in our brains so that we become more receptive to what helps us along the path uh, to freedom. So the idea of taking in the good is uh, when your mindfulness presents you with something pleasant you know, like uh, the smell of a tangerine or the smile of a child. Take it in. Stop for it. You know, let it, let it touch you. Uh, he also, Rick also says that our minds are like um, Velcro for negative experiences and Teflon for positive experiences. So we tend as humans to kind of ignore the good stuff and dwell on uh, the bad stuff. So taking in the good is a way of kind of reversing this process. So we, we, we stop for the experience of what's uh, pleasant or good. And then the next step is to savor it. So don't let your t- attention skitter away right away. Take a moment and savor that. And then the third uh, step in taking in the good is imagining that penetrating into you in a very deep way. So using your imagination to, you know, really, really take it in deeply. So seven ways of cultivating contentment by inviting uh, tranquility, non-harming, generosity, 
simplicity, gratitude, kindness, and taking in the good. So there's lots, lots of ways of, of uh, doing this. So now we get to the poems. Um, these are from the Terigata, which is a canonical text in the, in the Pali Canon, which are uh, the poems of awakening of the Buddha's first uh, female disciples. Um, the first three of the ones I'm going to read to you today are single verses in which the Buddha is instructing the nun in question and leading her to awakening. Um, and then when she attains Nibbana, she takes on this verse as her own and then she repeats it as, as she's remembering how she woke up and kind of adopting uh, what the Buddha taught her. But, but uh, she, had a, she had a lot of help from him because he had this great way of seeing wh- what each disciple really needed and you know, giving them just that. So the first one is an unnamed elder nun. And the Buddha says to her, and then she says herself later, Sleep at ease, dear elder, wrapped in the robe you made, for your desire is stilled like dried up vegetables in a jar. A lot of these nuns' poems have very... um, concrete imagery uh, like that. And, and some of the monks' poems tend to be a little bit more abstract. So next is Dira, and her name means firm or sage in Pali. Um, so the Buddha says, Dira, touch since cessation, the stilling of concepts, happiness, attain Nibbana, the unsurpassed safety from bondage. So here, for her to attain complete release, the Buddha is instructing her to touch cessation, the stilling of concepts, and happiness. So we see that um, touching happiness and, and contentment was a key element in the Buddha's teaching that allowed her to attain complete liberation. Next we have uh, Sumana, who went forth in old age. So she ordained when she was already uh, elderly. And for her, uh, contentment was the fruit of her practice. And the Buddha says to her, Old one, be at ease, wrapped in the robe you made, your desire still, you are calm and released. So again, you know, just the, the the contentment of having of being wrapped in your robe, you know, and and finding ease in that because you're no longer chasing desires. Next, we have a a poem by uh, Sumangala Mata. Mata means mother. And Sumangala is her son, and his name means good fortune. So she, she's the mother of good fortune. Um, 
And in her poem, uh, she celebrates her release from an unhappy marriage. And then uh, having uprooted desire and aversion, uh, she goes into the forest and meditates. And you'll see it free at last. She exclaims, ah, happiness. So Sumangalamata says, free, free. I am thoroughly free from the pestle. My shameless husband, his sunshade, my pot that smells like a water snake. Swish, swish, I strike down desire and hatred. Going to the foot of a tree, ah, what happiness. Happy, I meditate. And here's one from Mita. Her name means friend. And, uh, you know, in the time of the Buddha, people believed in real rebirth, and maybe rebirth is true, I don't know. Um, But she apparently, in a previous life, was living in a divine realm. So this is a realm where there's really no suffering, and, you know, you get great food, and just everything's beautiful. Um, So she begins as a pious laywoman, Uh, after having been in the realm of the gods in a previous life. And when she's ordained, she no longer um, is enticed by the pleasures of the god realm. And she celebrates the simplicity of her renunciate life in becoming completely free. So she begins by talking about uh, how she was practicing as a laywoman. She says, On the special fortnight days of the 8th, 14th and 15th of the lunar month, I kept the eight precepts. On these observance days, I used to delight in the assembly of the gods. But now, eating one meal, shaved and wrapped in the outer robe, I do not wish to be among the gods, having eliminated fear in my heart. And now we have a a poem from Vijaya, and her name means victory or triumph. And she's one of these nuns um, who, I'm sure nobody here ever struggles with wild mind, but Vijaya struggled with wild mind. And she had as a childhood friend another woman whose name was Kema, and Kema became one of the greatest uh, of uh, women teachers of the of the Buddhist disciples. In fact, the Buddha considered Kema foremost in wisdom. So um, Vijaya ordains, uh, and then she goes to Kema and asks her for uh, teaching. And Kema helps lead her all the way to liberation. So Vijaya says. Four or five times I left my hut, not having attained any mental peace. I had no control over my mind. I approached a bhikkhuni and respectfully questioned her 
She taught me the Dharma, the elements and the sense spheres, the Four Noble Truths, the faculties and the powers, the wings of awakening and the Eightfold Path for attaining the ultimate goal. I heard her words and acted on her advice. During the first watch of the night, I recollected my past lives. During the middle watch of the night, I purified the divine eye. And during the last watch of the night, I burst open the mass of darkness. Then I dwelt pervading the body with joy and happiness. On the seventh day, I straightened out my legs and the mass of darkness burst open. It's a wonderful voyage, you know, from having a mind she couldn't control to really taking in the teaching and putting it into practice. And then these, this part about, you know, what happens in the, in the different watches of the night, those are stock phrases, and what they mean is that she attained uh, liberation. So um, the message I'd like to leave with you is that um, liberation is possible, even for people with wild minds. Um, Of course, we have to learn to let go of that wildness, little by little. Um, And that the cultivation of happiness or contentment is what allows the mind to let go into that deep state of unification, which is samadhi, where insight is born. And then there are many paths to cultivating this deep contentment. So one of them is really essential, and that is living ethically. And then the others are all skillful, you know? Generosity, simplicity, gratitude, kindness, taking in the good. So uh, thank you for listening. And the floor is yours if there's anything you'd like to discuss or share or ask. The 